Would you take your Bibles and turn with me to Hebrews chapter 5. Hebrews chapter 5. If you are using the Pew Bible this morning, you can find our passage beginning on page 693. We will be looking at Hebrews chapter 6, verses 9 through 12, but we will begin our reading this morning in chapter 5, verse 11. So if you've found your place, if you would stand with me in honor of the reading of the Word of God, as we look together at Hebrews chapter 5, beginning in verse 11, going through chapter 6, verse 12. The Holy Spirit, writing through the inspired author to the church, says this. About this we have much to say, and it is hard to explain since you have become dull of hearing. For though by this time you ought to be teachers, you need someone to teach you again the basic principles of the oracles of God. You need milk, not solid food. For everyone who lives on milk is unskilled in the word of righteousness, since he is a child. But solid food is for the mature, for those who have their powers of discernment trained by constant practice to distinguish good from evil. Therefore, let us leave the elementary doctrine of Christ and go on to maturity, not laying again a foundation of repentance from dead works and of faith toward God, and of instruction about washings, the laying on of hands, the resurrection of the dead, and eternal judgment. And this we will do if God permits. For it is impossible in the case of those who have once been enlightened, who have tasted the heavenly gift and have shared in the Holy Spirit, and have tasted the goodness of the Word of God and the powers of the age to come, and then have fallen away, to restore them again to repentance." since they are crucifying once again the Son of God to their own harm and holding him up to contempt. For land that has drunk the rain that often falls on it and produces a crop useful to those for whose sake it is cultivated receives a blessing from God. But if it bears thorns and thistles, it is worthless and near to being cursed, and its end is to be burned. Though we speak in this way, yet in your case, beloved, we feel sure of better things, things that belong to salvation. For God is not unjust so as to overlook your work and the love that you have shown for his name in serving the saints as you still do. And we desire each one of you to show the same earnestness to have the full assurance of hope until the end, so that you may not be sluggish, but imitators of those who through faith and patience inherit the promises. Father, I pray that your word will be clear this morning, and I pray your spirit would teach us and guide us into all truth for the sake of your great name and for the sake of your church. And we pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. Hear the sad story of Crawford Toy. Crawford Toy was converted and baptized in 1845. Over a decade later, in 1859, he became part of the first class of students at the Southern Baptist Theological Seminary. He quickly rose to the top of his class. John Broadus, his pastor, mentor, and one of the founders of Southern Seminary, said this of Toy. He is among the foremost scholars I have ever known of his years, and an uncommonly conscientious and devoted man. In 1860, Toy was appointed by the Foreign Mission Board of the Southern Baptist Convention to serve as a missionary to Japan because he said, quote, all young ministers ought to become missionaries to the heathen unless they could show good reason to the contrary. The Civil War, however, interrupted his plans. And after the war, instead of going to Japan, Toy decided to go to Germany to further his studies. Upon his return, Toy was elected as only the fifth professor of Southern Seminary. In 
And not only was he becoming known among fellow scholars, but he was the most liked professor at the seminary, and he was teaching more students than any of the other faculty. Broadus, again, called him our shining pearl of learning. Not an ordinary star, but a brilliant meteor. And James Boyce, the first president of Southern Seminary, said Toy was easily the best in scholarship among the other professors. But by 1877, rumors were beginning to circulate about Toy's teachings. At some point, he had begun adopting Darwin's evolutionary theories. At the same time, he began denying Scripture's inerrancy. Matters came to a head in 1879 after Toy published a Sunday school lesson denying all traditional messianic prophecies of the Old Testament. At the May 1879 trustees meeting, Toy tenured his resignation, hoping that by doing so, the trustees would reject his resignation and vindicate him. Instead, they voted unanimously to dismiss him. Writing to his wife, Broadus said, Alas, the mournful deed is done. Toy's resignation is accepted. He is no longer professor in the seminary. I learned that the board were all in tears as they voted, but no one voted against it. We have lost our jewel of learning, our beloved and noble brother, the pride of the seminary. It only took 10 years for Crawford Toy to go from brilliant meteor to being dismissed from the seminary. Recounting their farewell at the train station in Louisville, Kentucky in 1879, Broadus wrote of James Boyce throwing his left arm around Toy's shoulders, holding up his right and saying, Oh, Toy, I would freely give that arm to be cut off if you could be where you were five years ago and stay there. Toy's fiance. Lottie Moon broke off their engagement because of his views. In 1880, Toy was appointed a professor at Harvard University. In 1890, 11 years after being dismissed from Southern Seminary, he published a work denying the deity of Christ. By 1907, he had rejected any absolute religious truth. He died in 1919, at age 83, having never returned to the Orthodox Christian faith. An uncommonly conscientious and devoted man, ordained to be a missionary, a beloved seminary professor, a heretic. Brothers and sisters, we need to be mindful of the warning passages. There is a real danger that confronts every Christian. But God has given us these warnings as a means to keep us from falling. They are His gracious gifts to you and me. Roy gave me a great illustration a few days ago. Imagine you're driving down the street when suddenly there are red and blue lights in your rearview mirror. You glance down. You're going 15 over the speed limit. You pull over. The officer taps on the window. Do you know how fast you were going? License and registration. He goes back to his patrol car and all you can think is, how could I have been so dumb? And how much is this ticket going to cost me? The officer comes back. You take a deep breath. Here it is. I'm going to let you off with a warning. What a relief. You, you thank him pro profusely and then you pill out and race away. You yell out the window, eat my dust. No, of course not. 
Of course not. You check your rear view, you check your side mirror, your, your seat belt's snug, you put your blinker on, you pull away, you're mindful of the speed limit, maybe even go five under, because he gave you a warning. He gave you a warning. That's what's going on here. You've been given a warning. But the consequences for ignoring this warning are far worse than a $200 ticket. And so we must carefully, and in the fear of the Lord, heed the warning, lest we end up another sad, cautionary tale like Crawford Toy. But the author doesn't stop with the warning. He he doesn't stop with the warning. Thanks be to God, Hebrews chapter 6, verses 4 through 8 are not the end of the letter. He keeps going. There's more. And whereas verses 4 through 8 were a severe warning, verses 9 through 20 are going to give us encouragement. They're going to give us assurance and they're going to give us hope. Calvin says, as the preceding sentences were like thunderbolts by which readers might have been struck dead, it was needful to mitigate this severity. They and we have been struck with terror, and now we're given comfort. As another commentary says, the warning disturbs. And I know that many of you were disturbed last week. That's what it's meant to do. The warning disturbs while the promise gives assurance. But they serve the same end, which is that listeners might persevere in the faith. You need both. We, we want to jump to the assurance too quickly. We need both. You needed the warning last week, but you need just as, as strongly the assurance this week. And so from warning in verses 4 through 8 to assurance and comfort in verses 9 through 20. And this assurance is based on the character and the promises of God. And if we'll, if we'll grasp who God is and if we'll believe His promises, we will have all the assurance we need to persevere in the faith to the very end. It's a confidence that the author has. And it's a confidence that he wants these Christians to have. And by extension, it's a confidence that he wants you to have. And so we'll look at 9 through 20 over the the next two weeks. And we'll see this assurance and this confidence that we can have in light of the warning. And so let's look at verses 9 through 12 this morning, because after the warning, we can have confidence. And here's how I want you to, this is how I'm framing these verses. This is how I want you to to think about it. After the warning, you can have confidence. Confidence that you will not fall away. It's a confidence based on the character of God, demonstrated by the work of God, For the purpose of your continued trust in God. Let me say that again. It's a confidence that's based on the character of God. It's demonstrated by the work of God. And it's for the purpose of your continued trust in God. So let's look again at our passage. And the first thing that I want you to see is that you can have confidence that you won't fall away, and it's a confidence based upon the character of God. Look again at our passage, beginning in verse 9. Though we speak in this way, yet in your case, beloved, we feel sure of better things, things that belong to salvation. Again, this was a strong, severe Warning, this was not a light tap on the, on the wrist. This was a strong warning. Calvin calls it a thunderbolt. And once we truly understand what's being threatened against those who fall away, it should cause us to tremble. We ought to read this and understand it, and then it ought to fill us with indignation, and we ought to 
going through the warning passages, we ought to pay much closer attention. We ought to take care. We ought to exhort one another. And we ought to fear lest any of us should seem to have failed to reach God's rest. When the police officer lets you off with a warning, you don't peel out and ignore him. That would be unwise. It's the same here. Don't be foolish and ignore the warning. But instead, when you read that warning, examine your life. And if, after examining our life, we realize that we have been drifting away, that we have grown lazy, and, and our, res- our response to the warning should look very much like the response of the Corinthians in 2 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 11. Paul, he's, he's, he's describing how the Corinthians responded to warnings and to correction. He says, see what earnestness this godly grief has produced in you. But also what eagerness to clear yourselves, what indignation, what fear, what longing, what zeal, what punishment. At every point, you approved yourselves innocent in the matter. This is what genuine godly repentance looks like. It's the kind of response that this warning is meant to elicit. It's not meant for you to look at the warning and say that's about someone else. Or I wish someone else was here to hear it. Or examining deeply into someone else's life to see whether they fit the description. It's meant for you. It's meant for you to examine yourself in light of the warning. And then to respond with holy, godly repentance. Now, however, you can hear how he changes the tone. You can hear how he changes his tone. He, he even uses the affectionate title, Beloved. She is nowhere else in the, in the entire letter except for here. Though we speak in this way, yet in your case, Beloved. He knows it's a hard warning. He knows it's a hard warning, but it's a, it's a warning that he had to give because, because they're, they're in danger. Like a parent, he has to issue a stern rebuke towards a disobedient child, but also like a a loving parent, the rebuke isn't the end. There's also tenderness. And so he shows tenderness here after the warning. Though we've had to speak this way, beloved, we're confident of better things that await you, things that belong to salvation. And again, this this warning is concerning salvation, just as the assurance is. He is sure of better things. This this word is used again in chapter 13, verse 18, where he says he's sure that he has a clear conscience. In Acts chapter 14, verse 19, the word is translated persuaded. Despite the warning, he is sure He is persuaded of better things for them. He is confident that they will not fall away, but they'll be saved. But we have to ask the question, if he has such confidence, then why does he even issue the warning in the first place? And if he's so confident, if he's so persuaded, why give a warning that's so severe? Again, we have to to remember it's because of the constant danger of growing sluggish and dull of hearing. Remember, it might be easy for us to read this in a hypothetical way. But for our author, this is anything but hypothetical. This is not hypothetical for him. He's writing to real Christians who are in real danger of falling away and being lost. This isn't the the testing siren that goes off at noon. This is the real deal. And F5 is bearing down on these saints. And so he gives the warning. And you must heed the warning. So he issues a warning. And now having given the warning, he says he's sure that they will listen. He's confident. He's persuaded that they will heed the warning. And that they will not fall away. But how can he be so confident? And how can we? How can we be so confident? He goes on to say in verse 10 that God is not unjust. 
God is not unjust. The King James Version and the Legacy Standard Bible have it as unrighteous. God is not unrighteous. We are often unjust. We are often unrighteous. But God will never be any of those things. Deuteronomy chapter 32, verse 4. The rock, his work is perfect. For all his ways are justice. A God of faithfulness and without iniquity. Just and upright is he. Psalm chapter 89, verse 14, Righteousness and justice are the foundation of your throne. Steadfast love and faithfulness go before you. God's character is righteous and it is just. Now, how does God's justice give us confident assurance that we will never fall away? Well, if God's justice were to fall upon us, in our sin, we would surely be crushed. We would surely be crushed. He is a God who cannot ignore sin. He cannot and will not overlook wickedness. Every act of unrighteousness and injustice, he will punish it because he is the God of justice. This is why we ought to tremble for all the people who are screaming right now for the the right to get an abortion. God will not leave that great injustice unpunished. There is coming a day when the justice of God will be met. And and those who, who are in rebellion, they'll be crushed under it. But this is also good news for God's people. Psalm 37, verse 28. For Yahweh loves justice. He will not forsake his saints. They are preserved forever, but the children of the wicked shall be cut off. Listen to that again. Notice notice what, what... characteristic of God, what what part of God is being emphasized here, and so there's comfort for God's people. Yahweh loves justice. He will not forsake His saints. They are preserved forever. But the children of the wicked shall be cut off. Since God is just... He will not forsake the saints. This is good news for you and me. This is cause for confidence and assurance. Because God has already fully and finally dealt with our sin. He has sent Christ who fulfilled the law and has paid the penalty for sinners by His substitutionary death on the cross. God hasn't overlooked or ignored your sin. He has not dismissed it. But in His mercy, He has not punished sinners, but has poured out His wrath on His Son. His justice is seen. It's seen on the cross. Full, complete, final. Justice has been satisfied. And now all who are trusting in Christ, those who are looking to Him alone as as their only hope and as their only sacrifice, they're saved. Look at Romans chapter 3, verses 21 through 26. But now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it. The righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. For there is no distinction. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by His grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by His blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness because in His divine forbearance He had passed over former sins. It was to show His righteousness at the present time so that He might be just 
and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. God does not overlook sin. He does not ignore sin. He doesn't, he doesn't sweep it under the rug. He doesn't shove it under the bed. He doesn't try to cram it all into a closet and close the doors and nobody move. And let's just pretend it's not there. He is a God of righteousness. He is a God of justice. He is a God who has to deal with sin and he has dealt with it fully and finally in the death of Christ. He has poured out all of his wrath, all of his justice, all of his righteousness on Jesus. Jesus, while hanging on the cross, he was taking all the sins of his people upon himself and all of God's wrath is being poured out on him and God's justice is satisfied in the death of Jesus and those who are trusting in Christ go free. This is the confidence we have in light of the warning of verses 4 through 8. Not that we can save ourselves or keep hold of ourselves. The warning is not meant to cause navel gazing. It's not, you're not intended to drum up the energy to keep yourself from falling. You're meant to see the immense danger. You're meant to see the, the, the bottomless chasm that's in front of you. And you're meant to flee to Christ. You're meant to flee to the cross. The warning is meant for you to say, if it's up to me, I'm lost. It's meant for you to see your weakness. It's meant for you to see your frailty. It's meant for you to see a danger that is overwhelming and say, my only hope is Jesus. And by doing so, you're safe. By doing so, by fleeing to Christ, it is the assurance that you will never fall away because Christ keeps His own. Because He has died for them, He will save them. He will keep them. And if and when we sin... We have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous, or it can easily read Jesus Christ the just. He is the propitiation. He is the atoning sacrifice. He is the satisfaction for our sins, and not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. This is the confidence that we can have that we won't fall away. Christ has died. Justice has been satisfied. Flee to the cross. This is the confidence we have. It's a confidence not based upon our strength. It's not based upon our righteousness. It's not based upon our character. It's based upon the character of God. He is just. He is just. Not only is this confidence based upon the character of God, it's demonstrated by the work of God. It's based upon the character of God. God is not unjust, but it's, de- it's demonstrated by the work of God. Look again at our passage. Though we speak in this way, yet in your case, beloved, we feel sure of better things. Things that belong to salvation. For God is not unjust so as to overlook your work and the love that you have shown for his name in serving the saints as you still do. The author is confident that his hearers won't fall away because he knows their works of love and their service for the saints. And he says this is a service that is ongoing. Turn over to chapter 10 really quickly and we can get a picture of of what that looks like. Hebrews chapter 10, verses 33 through 34, which incidentally is also coming off the the tail end of another warning passage that we'll get to. Hold on, be patient. We'll get to that warning passage soon enough. Hebrews chapter 10, verses 33 and 34. We get a a picture of, of what these saints have been doing. 
He says sometimes being publicly exposed to reproach and affliction and sometimes being partners with those so treated. For you had compassion on those in prison and you joyfully accepted the plundering of your property since you knew that you yourselves had a better possession and an abiding one. They're, they're partnering with or they're sharing in the sufferings of other Christians. Remember, th- these Christians, that they are being persecuted. They are being opposed. That, that's where their temptation to leave and go back to, to Judaism is arising from. It's not just some whim. They're, they're in the fire. And he says that, that while, while you're suffering, you're also sharing in the suffering with other Christians. While they're suffering, you're loving them and you're having compassion on them. You're even having compassion on those who are in prison. Not just in prison because they're, they're evildoers. These are those who are in prison for the sake of the gospel. They've been arrested and thrown into jail because they're preaching salvation through Jesus. And he says that these Christians are having compassion on their brothers and sisters in prison. And we can imagine as they're accepting the plundering of their property, they were no doubt providing for the needs of others. In other words, they were obeying Jesus' words from Matthew chapter 25, verses 35 and 36. You can turn over there and and see this in in Jesus' instructions here in Matthew chapter 25. Verses 35 and 36, this is the the story of the the final judgment when the Son of Man, He comes in His glory and He sits on His throne of judgment. He separates the sheep and the goats and He looks at the sheep and He says this in verse 35, For I was hungry and you gave me food. I was thirsty and you gave me drink. I was a stranger and you welcomed me. I was naked and you clothed me. I was sick and you visited me. I was in prison and you came to me. Hold on to that passage. Don't, don't flip back too quickly. This is what the, the Christians in Hebrews are doing. They're being obedient to Jesus' words here from Matthew chapter 25. And this is more than just charity work. This is more than just being a good citizen who wants to serve her community by volunteering in a soup kitchen. It says back over in our passage in Hebrews, it says that, that it's their work and the love that they have shown for His name in serving the saints. They're showing love for God's name. They're loving both God and their neighbor. And it's both this, this vertical and horizontal element that gives the author confidence that these Christians will not fall away because God is not unjust so as to overlook or to forget these works that they've been doing. But what does that mean? What does that mean? Though we speak in this way, yet in your case, beloved, we feel sure better things, things that belong to salvation. For God is not unjust so as to overlook your work and the love that you have shown for his name in serving the saints as you still do. What does that mean? Is is God somehow beholden to us? And the more works we do, the more assurance we can have of our salvation because now God owes us. Well, that's definitely not what the author is talking about here. That's definitely not not the confidence that the author has. And I think Matthew 25 will help us here again. If you're still there, you can look over and we can ask, why are the sheep in this passage performing these deeds? Why are they giving food to the hungry? Why are they they giving drink to those who are thirsty? Why are they welcoming the stranger and clothing those who are naked and, and visiting the sick and those who are in prison? Why are they doing those things? Are they doing those things to earn salvation? Obviously not. Look at verses 37 and 39. Then the righteous will answer him saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you or thirsty and give you drink? And when did we see you a stranger and welcome you or naked and clothe you? And when did we see you sick or in prison and visit you? Those verses, they show that that they're not doing these things to impress Christ. They almost seem oblivious. When When did we do these things for you? So why are they doing these things then? They they do these acts of service out of their nature. Notice verse 37 calls them the righteous. 
they're righteous. They are righteous, and so they do righteous deeds. Go back to Hebrews chapter 6. Why can the writer be confident that despite the warning, better things are in store for these Christians? Because he's seen the evidence of their transformed lives. He sees the evidence of their transformed lives. One commentator calls this the comforting evidence of God's heart-transforming, love-producing grace. And I really like that description. The comforting evidence of God's heart-transforming, love-producing grace. And God is not unjust so as to forget your work which is the evidence of his work. Their love for God, their service towards others, all of it is evidence that God has changed them, that they have been born again. And the promise is that he who began a good work within them will bring it to completion on the day of Christ Jesus. And God is not unjust, but will give to them what he has promised them, eternal life. We need to stop having an allergic reaction whenever we hear the word work in connection with salvation. One brother told me that he thinks the reason that so many struggle with this warning passage is because as soon as they hear that we're supposed to do something, they immediately think works-based salvation or legalism. And we need to stop that. Let's be perfectly clear. No one will ever be saved by any of their own works. We can nail that down. You cannot merit salvation. You can never do enough. You can never have enough good deeds to ever atone for even one of your sins. Because you've sinned against an infinitely holy God. Salvation is by God's grace alone, through faith alone, in the finished work of Christ alone. And that's how salvation is, but but in your own life, no amount of good works can ever bring you nearer to God than you already are in Christ right now. But let me be equally clear. If you claim to be a Christian, but you have no works to prove it, the Bible gives you no grounds for assurance whatsoever. That's not works-based salvation. That's not legalism. That's, that's basic biblical Christianity. For goodness sake, Christians are said to be slaves of righteousness. Slaves of righteousness. James chapter 2, verse 26, For as the body apart from the spirit is dead so also faith apart from works is dead. Matthew chapter 7, verse 21, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. Second Peter chapter 1, which Philip read for us. Peter calls upon the saints to confirm your calling and your election. How? How are you supposed to confirm your calling and election? Are you supposed to to look deep inside and, well, I I just feel like I'm a Christian. Is it based upon some decision that you made? I, I made a decision. Verses 5 through 9 tell us how to confirm our calling and election. We don't have to guess. It's not, some, it's not some mystical feeling that we have. The Bible gives us what we need to know, what we need to, to see how to confirm your calling and election. For this very reason, make every effort to supplement your faith with virtue and virtue with knowledge and knowledge with self-control and self-control with steadfastness and steadfastness with godliness and godliness with brotherly affection and brotherly affection with love. 
For if these qualities are yours and are increasing, they keep you from being ineffective or unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. For whoever lacks these qualities is so nearsighted that he is blind, having forgotten that he was cleansed from his former sins. How do we we have assurance? How can we know? How can we confirm our calling and election? What does your life look like? Are you bearing fruit? Uh, do, Do you look like a Christian? Or did you walk an aisle at Falls Creek and say a prayer and fill out a card and even meet with a counselor and you came back and no one has ever seen you? You've disappeared. Have you walked an aisle and you've talked to a pastor, you've even been baptized and joined the church, but you've been gone for so long that none of the new members would even know you if you walked through the door? Do you have to blow off the dust off your Bible? When's the last time you told someone about Jesus? Are you devoted to prayer? Do you have an affection towards Jesus? What does that affection look like? What does it lead you to do? We're to confirm our calling and election by looking at our lives and saying, I see the evidence of bearing fruit for the sake of Christ. And this is the confidence that that our author has towards these Christians in Hebrews chapter 6. Not that they're perfect. Not even that they have no doubts or temptations, because they surely do. But he has seen the evidence of their transformed lives in the way that, that they've loved Christ by serving the saints. And so by this demonstration of God's work, he is confident that they will heed the warning and not fall away. Examine your life. What's your life look like? I love the illustration that that Paul Washer gives. That if you were to walk in and tell me I've just been run over by a Mack truck, but you are dressed perfectly clean. There's no wrinkles. There's no dirt. There's no blood. You look fine. I don't believe you. It's the same as you, if you say that you've encountered the Holy God. You cannot look the same. Examine your lives. What's your life look like? You say you're a Christian. Does your life look like it? Do you look like a Christian? Here in verses 9 and 10, he's saying, you look like Christians. I've given you this warning, but, but I've seen the evidence in your life, and so I'm confident that you're not going to fall away. You're going to heed the warnings because God's work is evidence. It's a confidence that you can have, and it's demonstrated by the work of God in your life. But these evidences, they're not reason for these Christians to grow lazy and complacent. Because his confident assertion that's based upon the character of God and demonstrated by the work of God, it's for the purpose of their continued trust in God. Look at verses 11 and 12. And we desire each one of you to show the same earnestness to have the full assurance of hope until the end, so that you may not be sluggish, but imitators of those who through faith and patience inherit the promises. They have shown earnestness in the past, but due to the persecution and the hardships and the suffering, they've grown sluggish. And so now he exhorts them to wake up, shake off the cobwebs, come to their senses and show that same earlier earnestness once more. You've shown it in your, your love and your service. We desire each one of you to show the same earnestness. To have the full assurance of hope until the end. He wants them to have full assurance of hope. 
so that they may not be sluggish. That's the same word that's translated in chapter 5, verse 11 as dull. Sluggish, dull, lazy. They become lazy Christians, which is an oxymoron. You cannot be a lazy Christian. The Christian life is described in a variety of different ways. It's described as a Christian being a soldier, as a Christian being a farmer, a Christian being an athlete. Professional couch potato is not one of the descriptions. And yet these Christians, and many today in America, maybe even you, have grown lazy. And now that trials have come, they're in danger. And the only solution is to get up and get back to work. Repent of your complacency. Don't excuse it. Own up to it. Turn to God and say, Father, I have grown lazy in my walk. I have grown complacent. And then know that the blood of Jesus cleanses even the laziest of Christians. Get back into the Word of God and let the Word of God get back into you. Study, meditate, memorize, obey. Don't neglect prayer. Set aside a prayer time. Be aware of your sin. You cannot go around pretending like you're not in a war. That there's not an enemy that's waiting to creep up behind you and stab you in the back when you're least expecting it. Be aware of sin. Be on guard. Kill the sin that rises in your heart. Be faithful at church. Don't just show up and leave. Don't just attend. Find ways to fellowship. Find ways to serve others. Don't sit in the overflow just because it's there and it's comfortable. Don't watch from home just because it's available. Be here. But this is work. And it's hard work. Maybe the hardest of work. It's the work of a slave of Christ. Do the hard work so that you will have the full assurance of hope until the end. Full assurance. It's a word that describes a ship in full sail. Or or a tree that's fully laden with fruit. We have a, a pear tree in our backyard and it's it's taken years. But finally last year the fruit came in and the branches were so full that that they were bending over. Full assurance. Christian, you're not meant to go through life always doubting. You're not meant to go through life always questioning whether you're saved or not. Always fearful. You can have full assurance of the hope of Christ. But you have to strive for it. Don't be lazy and reckless and never in the Bible and never in prayer and you're spotty at church and then expect assurance. And if you're a a complacent, worldly Christian now, when persecution and suffering and temptations to compromise arise, don't expect that you're going to be ready. If I was called upon to run a marathon today, I would quite literally die. Because I'm not ready. I'm not trained. I haven't been diligent. I am fat and out of shape. I'll die. It's the same in your Christian life. You are called to be ready at a moment's notice. And as you you strive, as you train, as you're on guard, as you're you're seeking Christ and you're in the Word and you pray and you're around other believers and you're, you're fellowshipping and you're loving, full assurance is ready for you. You can have full assurance today. 
But it's only for those who show an earnestness to have that full assurance and confidence who will have it. It's not something magical that that just comes upon you randomly. It's something that, that you have to be diligent to pursue. And that assurance is a powerful weapon. It's a powerful weapon, an assurance of who Christ is, of his powerful work on the cross for you, of his resurrection and his ascension, of the Holy Spirit's work in your heart of regeneration and sanctification. That assurance is like 5,000 volts powering you to persevere. You can get up every day knowing Christ is alive. He has died for me and I'm going to live for him. And it is full assurance. So don't be sluggish. Don't be sluggish. Don't be lazy. But be imitators. The word there is where we get our word for mimic. Be a mimic of those who through faith and patience inherit the promises. This anticipates Hebrews chapter 11. And it reminds us that, that we're not the first we're not the first. We're, we're not alone. We, we can look down through the past and we can see the, the lives of the saints in the Old Testament. And we have the extra benefit of, of being able to look at the lives of the saints in the New Testament. And we can see their, their faith and their patience, literally long-suffering And we can see what they did so that we won't be sluggish, but we'll mimic them. We'll mimic them in their faith and in their patience. God has given them promises. And they didn't always see them immediately. We're going to see this in Hebrews chapter 11. We're going to see how they they struggled and they strove and they, they persevered. Mimic them. But next time in verses 13 through 20, we're going to look specifically at how we can mimic Abraham. And we can have an unshakable hope, again, based upon the promises of God in Christ. And as you do this, you can have assurance. The author here, he's confident. He has this confidence that even though he's had the, to speak this hard warning, he is sure that, that they are going to persevere. They are not going to fall away. They're going to believe. They're going to hold on to Christ and they can have full assurance. He wants them to have that. And I want you to have that. I know the warning last week was hard. It's a hard warning. The promises, the promises are so magnificent. They're so wonderful that they are more than a match for the warning. You can have confidence. You can have assurance. It's a confidence that's based on the character of God. He's not unjust. It's a confidence that's demonstrated by the work of God. God has 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 begun a work in His people. He has regenerated them. They've been born again and He's sanctifying them and they're bearing fruit and it's, it's evidence that He's working and that if He began a work, He's going to bring it to completion. He's not going to stop halfway and say, oh man, that George, I, I, I don't even know what to do with him anymore. I made a mistake. He began a good work. He's going to bring it to completion. Praise be to God. But this confidence, it's for the purpose of your continued trust in God. Continue going on, pressing forward, persevering to the end. As a student of Southern Seminary, I don't know if I ever told you guys that I went to the Southern Baptist Theological Seminary. As a student at Southern Seminary, I heard about Crawford Toy regularly. He was an ever-present warning of the danger that we all face to leave, to abandon the faith. 
Yesterday was the anniversary of his resignation from the seminary. So it's been on my mind. Brothers and sisters, God is not unjust. Christ has died. Your sins have been forever atoned for by the blood of Jesus. Look to him daily. Look to him even now. Cling to the cross. God has begun a good work in you. Continue striving for holiness and, and know that you can have full assurance that no matter what may come, keep persevering, keep going. And we go on together. You're not alone. We go on together. If you have doubts, if you're struggling with those, those doubts and, and you're not sure, you, you don't have that assurance yet, you don't have that confidence, don't keep it to yourself. Don't keep it hidden. Don't, don't keep it in a dark closet in, in the back of your mind and it's, it's constantly twirling and, and we only know about it after you're gone. Find somebody, find a brother or sister and tell them, I'm just struggling. We pray for me. We, we all need that encouragement. Let us be that encouragement for you. We go on together. And if you never trusted in Christ, today you're, you're, you're facing a greater danger because you're, you're hanging over the very pit of hell. You're on the very precipice of God's justice and wrath. But there is a Savior. There is a Savior who has been crucified for sinners. And He has atoned fully for the sins of all who would trust in Him. And He is alive today. He has been raised to life and He intercedes for His people. And He is ready and He is willing and He is able to receive anyone who would come to Christ. If you've never come to Christ today, don't harden your heart. Don't turn away. Don't walk out of here. Trust in Christ. Look to Him alone. He is our hope. He, he is our peace. He is our only Savior. And you can have assurance of better things. Things that belong to salvation. And as we look to Christ and as we persevere and as we bear fruit for His name, may He graciously sustain us to the very end. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for your word. And just as we were faced with the warning last week, we thank you and we praise you for the encouragement that we have this week. We thank you that you have sent your son to fully atone for our sin, that he has died for a particular people, and that we know that that we who are trusting in Him are eternally safe. God, I pray for my brothers and sisters here who may have doubts and they may have fears and they may not have that full assurance. I pray that today they would be encouraged to look to Christ and Christ alone. And I pray that they will be confident of, of the work that you've begun in their lives. I pray that they will bear fruit I pray by the power of Your Spirit, by Your grace, that, that they would show forth the fruit of Your Spirit. That their love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control, it would be evidence in their lives that You have begun a good work in them and that You will be faithful to bring it to completion. That no matter their, their weaknesses and their failings, the sins that they continue to struggle with. God, I pray that they will have encouragement and hope through Christ. And I pray that all of us together will, will press on, that we will 
we will keep going, that you will give us the strength to persevere to the very end. God, I pray for those here who have never trusted in Christ. For those who have never made a, a public profession of faith. They've never, they've never taken a stand and declared that Jesus is their Lord. He is their Savior. He alone is their hope. I pray today that your Spirit would convict them of sin, cause them to be born again, and may they join with us. God, we thank you for all of your precious and very great promises. Ways in which you are mindful of, of our frailty. You remember that we are but dust. And you've loved us. And you care for us. And you strengthen us. May our eyes be always only on the Lord Jesus. And we pray that your church will be built and that you will get all the glory. And we pray these things in the name of Christ. Amen.